You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. John chapter 2 is where we are going to kick off this morning, starting in verse 1. And here's what we read. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And by the way, when you think of a wedding in the first century, don't think of kind of like what we do here, where it's just like basically a 10-minute ceremony with a little bit of like, you know, snacks after it's over. Like this is a week-long celebration. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Scholars tell us that Jesus' mother actually played a really important role in the celebration. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Mary's probably freaking out at this moment. It's actually her job, scholars tell us, to make sure that the wine continues, that the guests are being taken care of. But they've run out of wine. So she comes to Jesus, her sons, they've run out of wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, which is actually an endearing term back in the first century, is not being condescending. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And by the way, the master of the feast, it was his job to make sure that everybody was having a good time. Like he was like the party master, okay? So he says, take it to the master. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone typically serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And it manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I thank you so much for every man, woman, and child who is here today. I pray that right now that you would just slow our hearts down and help us just to be in the moment, to hear what it is that you have for us through your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Robin Williams, a man who in many ways has brought laughter into our homes through the medium of his own comedic tone. And when I look at this picture of Robin Williams, I think in many ways it sums up his life, but yet I also think that this picture in many ways serves as sort of an archetype of our cultural moment, where behind an infectious, contagious smile like this is this deep, unshakable sadness. And you know, whether it's the suicide of Robin Williams or Anthony Bourdain or the statistics of how a number of Americans right now uh, that are on antidepressants have climbed by 60% in the last 15 years... The truth is, for many people living in our society, behind the smile and the dancing and the raw, raw, raw and the singing and the comedic tone of our society is this deep well of sadness. And therefore, I think in a nation like ours that is built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? 
happiness, I think a lot of times we begin to wonder, are we chasing after the wind? And this isn't just a reality outside of the church. I think it's also a reality inside of the church as well. Um, you know, with that smile and that, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm great, brother, doing well. How are you? Oh, man, doing well. God bless you. Yeah, God bless you too. And clap, clap, clap. And I think all of that there's still, even in the church, this low-grade sense of anxiety and depression that for many people has become the new norm. And I think, unfortunately, in a legalistic culture like the one that some of us have grown up in, where we believe the lie that Christianity is more about rules to be followed than a joy to be found, we think that Jesus has very little to say on the subject of joy and happiness. For some of you, maybe you picture Jesus kind of like this painting in the Sistine Chapel, where Jesus is pale white, never mind the fact that he was a Jew who grew up in Africa. And he's skinny, never mind that he was actually accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And in picture after picture, above all, we see that he's sad. Never mind the prophecy in Isaiah 61 that says that Jesus would come to to the world to proclaim good news and to anoint our heads with the oil of joy, end quote. And we actually get a glimpse of this type of joy that Jesus came to bring right here in John chapter 2, verse 11. If you look back with me, it says again in verse 11 that this, talking about the miracle that Jesus just performed, where he took water and he turned it into wine, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, manifested his glory. When you see that word for glory, don't think fame or celebrity status, but rather... Think of it as a word in the context of Scripture that encompasses the essence of who Jesus is. So in other words, when John talks about this first miracle as a manifestation of Jesus' glory, what he is saying is more than he's saying is this is a miracle that made Jesus famous. He's saying this is a miracle that actually served as a signpost that pointed people to what Jesus is really like. And this should blow our minds because what John just told us in John chapter 1 is that though Jesus is fully human, he's also fully God. In Hebrews, for example, it's not just John that says this, but in Hebrews chapter 1, the scripture says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. In the words of Paul in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so what John is saying here is when he says that this miracle served to manifest the glory of Christ, he is saying that whenever Jesus turned water into wine, he isn't simply showing us what a good human is like, but rather he is showing us in full effect what the God of the universe is like. And what is God like, according to John chapter 2? Well, despite common belief, he's not a celestial killjoy, but rather he's actually the kind of God that you would want to invite to a party. And he's the kind of God who apparently would show up at a party, and he would stay a long time. And whenever the wine runs out, he would make more, and not just like cheap, bad wine where the party master was like, this is terrible, what are you, what are you doing with this? But the kind of stuff where he says, man, this is the best stuff that I've tasted. That's what our God is like. Is it any wonder then that when you read the Bible that joy is one of the central teachings of Jesus' life? For example, in the Gospel of John alone, we read the following. John chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Complete. John 16, 24. Jesus says, until now you have not asked anything in my name but ask and you will receive so that your joy will be what? Complete. Complete. 
And then in Jesus' prayer to the Father, one of the most famous prayers from Jesus in John 17, 13, he says, I say these things that while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now, there are many more verses that I could read like this, but from these passages and many more passages like this in Scripture, we learn two very important realities from Jesus on the subject of joy. And if you're taking notes, the first thing that we learn is that since Jesus is God in the flesh, what we learn, and that since Jesus said himself, I have a full measure of joy in me, the first thing we learn is that God is the most joyful being in all of the universe. And that is why if you look at Genesis 1, you don't have to turn there, but we see literally in the very first page of the Bible, God is singing creation into existence. There, there's this repeated lyric actually in there that, that scholars tell us is literally poetry. It's a song where, where God would create something and then he would repeat this lyric, it is good. He would create, it is good. So he would create like a, a woodpecker and say, it is good. He would sing it. Right? Or he would create an ocean or a tree or, or some other kind of animal or plants. And at the climax of his creation, he sings, this is really good. I mean, you cannot read the very first page of the Bible without seeing the goodness and the joy of God just flowing out of him. And so what that means then, we have to get this today, is that at the center of the universe, despite popular belief, is not a God who is grumpy, but a God who's actually happy and who is joy-filled. Filled to the brim. To kind of help you wrap your mind around this, I want to do a little quick exercise with you. And so if you will, just close your eyes for a moment. And you don't have to do this if you don't want to. I promise you we're not a cult, despite what some rumors say. I'm not going to like try to like give you some Kool-Aid or something while your eyes are closed. But while your eyes are closed, I want you to think about what is the most beautiful place you have ever been to. And when you have it, just shout it out. Let me hear from some of you. What's the most beautiful place you've ever been? Let me hear it. Say it loud so we can hear you. Hawaii. Hawaii. What's that? Waikiki. Waikiki. Great the Great Smoky Mountains. New Zealand. New Zealand. What's that? Belize. Belize? Okay. I don't know where that is, but that sounds awesome. <laughs> um, excellent. Now, here's what I want you to do. Now, close your eyes again, and I want you to think about what is the happiest moment of my life. Or maybe the second or third, it doesn't have to be necessarily number one, but what is, what's a memory that comes to your mind? I'll start first. I would say the birth of my first son. Not that the birth of my first child, my daughter wasn't great, but I was super nervous and all that. But the birth of my first son was super special for me because I knew that I had a boy and I could maybe play catch with one day and pass on the family name and all that kind of stuff. So let me hear from you. What is one of the happiest moments of your life? Shout it out. November 5th. November 5th. What else? When said yes. Awesome. When Stacy said yes. Now, how many of you guys want to answer and not say something about your wife now? <laughs> what else? Let me hear a couple more. Happiest moment of your life. Come on, we're family. Let's share. Got saved. Awesome. One more. Let's hear Anybody? Happiest moment of your life. People's like, how am I going to share over uh, my wedding day and got saved? It's like anything I say now, right? It's like, it's like good. Let me hear one more. Happiest moment of your life. Awesome, right, where you got baptized. Excellent. Now, here's what I want you to do. With those places and those moments in mind, listen, 
as you think about the joy, and hopefully all of you had something in your mind, what I want you to realize is the joy even that you, that you experience in those moments and in those times, it's just a glimpse into the fullness of joy that the creator of the universe is experiencing every moment of every day. And what's incredible is that according to Jesus in John chapter 11, his prayer is that you will experience that same fullness of joy in you. And that leads to the second reality, if you're taking notes, and that is not only that God is the most joyful being in all the planet, but God's plan, listen to this, guys, God's plan for your life is to grow you into the kind of person who is as joyful as he is. God's plan for your life is for you to live in such a way that if you had a joy gauge on your dashboard, that it would be full. That you would be filled to the brim and overflowing with joy so that you could not even help but talk about God with others. I think about whenever Christ first broke into my life, whenever I was 20 years old. And many of you know, I grew up in the church and I believed that God could save me. I just didn't believe he could satisfy me. But then I met the real Jesus and I found out that God truly is a satisfaction, the fulfillment that I'm longing for. And I remember 20 years old, man, whenever I met God in my bedroom. And I don't mean like I physically saw him, but I felt his presence for the first time. And I remember like thinking like, man, like I've been forgiven of my sins and I've been brought into a relationship with God. I remember being so overwhelmed with joy, I could not help but share him with others. I was probably the most annoying human being on the planet for about a good three or four months, right? I'm like walking through Subway and it's like, hey, do you believe that tuna can feed 5,000 people? Like, no. It's like, well, I know someone who can, right? It's like, I just want to tell you about Jesus. It's like, I mean, I just, and I wasn't forcing it. Like it just happened. I had so much joy. And guys, listen, like that's what happens when you meet the real Jesus, the real resurrected King Jesus. He brings that kind of joy in Acts chapter 8. That there's a famous verse in there that actually motivated us to plant this church. And it's a verse where it says that Philip went down to Samaria and he proclaimed to them the gospel. And as a result, there was much joy in the city. Much joy. The reason we planted Fellowship Bible Church is because we believe that was not just God's plan for Samaria, but that's his plan for your life and my life and for everyone in this city, that as we meet the real Jesus and we take the real resurrected King Jesus forward through our missional communities and through our own lives, that people will meet him, be filled with his presence, and as a result, they will actually grow and mature into the kind of people who are marked by a real and unshakable joy. And by the way, let me just say this. When I, when I say joy, please don't think high school cheerleader. And so nothing against high school cheerleaders, by the way. But don't think, when you think of joy, don't think of the, the girl or the, or the boy who's like, rah, 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 despite the fact you're losing by 21 points, right? And so they're like, go team. And you know what I'm talking about. And you're like, please leave us alone. We're getting killed, right? Like, like, like that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about joy. Like, like, don't think of the smiley pastor, Joel Steen, right, where you see like the perfect teeth. Don't think of the person who always acts like everything is okay, even when it's not okay. Like, that is not spiritual maturity. That's actually hypocrisy. And so the same prophet that even said in Isaiah 61 that Jesus would be, uh, that he would come to anoint our heads with the oil of joy, actually says that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so I just want to be real clear this morning, like to be someone who has a fullness of joy doesn't mean that you won't have sorrow. Doesn't mean that you won't grieve. Doesn't mean you won't feel pain. What we see is that joy in the scripture is not the absence of grief. It's not the absence of sorrow, nor, by the way, is joy some like emotional high that you would get from, say, like a church camp, right? Where you and all your friends are walking down the aisle and like, you know, like whatever else you do at church camps. And it's not that God can't give us those kind of experiences. It's just that by and large, 
That's not really the type of joy Jesus is talking about here. And that is because when you understand joy in the scripture, and you have to get this, joy is not so much about an emotional high as much as it is about the overall condition of your heart. And if you don't get that, here's what you're going to think is going to happen when it comes to joy. You're going to think that Jesus is like sitting up in heaven with this joy bomb. He just like drops on you every now and then. Almost like kind of like water balloons. Have you ever played water balloons before? Some of us, I think, when it comes to joy, we think that, that, that Jesus is like sitting in heaven and he's like, oh, that's amazing, you're reading the Bible. Joy bomb! Right? Or like, oh, that's amazing, you went to the fellowship like three weeks in a row, joy bomb! Right? And I hit you with it. Like some of us, we have that view of God. And listen, sometimes that certainly can happen. Like even a couple of weeks ago, I was on the front porch at my house and I was reading the scripture and I came to this verse in Revelation and it reminded me of a song that my dad used to sing whenever I was growing up and it just filled my heart with all sorts of joy. Like I literally just was overwhelmed in the moment right there on my front porch, just me and the Lord with just how good my life is and what all God's done for me. I even like started listening to cheesy like 90s worship music. Like, saddle up your horses, anybody, by Stephen Curtis Chapman? Anybody? All right, yeah. I mean, like, I'm singing that throughout the house. It makes no sense. I'm just overwhelmed with the presence of God and the joy that he brings into my life. And those moments are fantastic, and we love it. But listen, guys, that's not even Jesus' main agenda for your life. Because more than Jesus wants to hit you with a joy bomb, Jesus wants to grow you and to mature you into a joyful person. He wants you to become the kind of person who, yes, you can grieve, and yes, you can feel sorrow and pain, but yet the overall condition of your heart and the fabric of your personality and your character is joyful and at peace, and you're actually a pleasant person to be around. And not just when you're reading your Bible and when you're praying, but even when you're driving on 49 in the fast lane behind someone who's going 50 miles per hour. Or even whenever you're changing that diaper or you're having that hard conversation or you're battling sickness or maybe when you get laid off, from work. What Jesus is after in every single one of our lives is way more than just some emotional high, but rather he wants to create in you the kind of person who really is experiencing a real and unshakable joy no matter what is going on in your life. And therefore, what I want to submit to you this morning is that cultivating a joy-filled heart should be at the center of our discipleship to Jesus. The question is this morning is how do we get there? How do we go from feeling empty to feeling full? How do we close the gap between what we read in the scriptures and what our actual experience is? And fortunately, the Apostle Paul, I think, answers this for us in Philippians chapter 4. So if you will, turn over there with me quickly. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible to bring with you, uh, we do put the scriptures on screen, but would love for you to own a physical copy you can bring with you. And so let us know if you need money to afford one of those. We'd be happy to bless you with one. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say here. Keep in mind the Apostle Paul, the one who is writing this text, he is writing from prison. He is possibly facing execution. He's lost everything because he chose to follow Jesus. And here's what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. The first step to experiencing joy like Jesus is to be with Jesus. If you have not committed your life to Christ, you cannot have this real unshakable joy. We're going to spend the next 12 weeks even talking about this phrase of what it means to be in the Lord, to be in Christ. Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then look, he starts getting practical. Here's how you do this. 
Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers or sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there's a lot in here, but for our purposes today, I just want you to notice two things if you're taking notes. And the first thing that I want you to notice is that if we're going to be the kind of people who rejoice always, we have to set our minds towards joy. And here's what I mean by that. Though joy is more than an emotion, joy is not less than an emotion. And as we know, none of us in here can wheel our emotions into or out of existence. For example, we can't just walk in here today and say, you know, I'm feeling kind of down, feeling a little gloomy, so I'm going to turn that off and I'm going to turn joy on. There's not a switch for that. And I think because we know that's true, there's a lot of people who think they have to live at the mercy of their emotions. And as a result, they live with this victim mentality where they believe the lie that they have to be some sort of a slave to their biochemical reactions. And that's very popular in our culture, but when we read the scriptures, we actually see something different. Because according to the Apostle Paul, what he just said in this passage is we do have control over our minds. We do have control over what we get to give mental real estate to. And as a general rule of thumb, listen, what you think about impacts how you feel. Does it not? For example, if you think about right now how lousy your boss is, what are you going to be feeling? Or if you think about the fact that, man, I might have a cancer in my body and not know it, what are you going to feel? But on the flip side of that, if you think about who God is and what he's really done for you in Christ, and you think about him who is the source of life and the source of joy and everything that is beautiful and true, like then what you begin to feel? Over time, you do begin to feel a sense of love and of peace and of joy. And listen, here's just the point I want to make. Though you cannot wheel joy into existence, you can change the way that you are thinking. And over time, that will begin to change how you feel. And specifically, because Paul knows this isn't easy for us, he gives us some really practical tips on how to change how we think and what we should think about. And here's just really three things very quickly that he says we need to do in order to set our minds towards joy. The first thing he says is you want to set your mind towards joy is in verse 6. You need to surrender the illusion of control over to God. Look again at verse 6. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. That's Paul's way of saying, look, if you want to be a joyful person, you have to release control to God. You have to come to a place where you say, no matter what the outcome is, I am going to be okay because God is going to be there working all together for my good. You have to come to a place where you say, whether the thing that I fear the most happens or doesn't happen, it will be okay because God is already there. He is for me. He is with me. And therefore, nothing that can happen could possibly crush me. I remember when I first became a Christian, literally one of the first things that I remember feeling was this kind of peace where I promise you, I'm not making this up for the sermon of a for the point of a sermon, but I remember feeling legitimately 20 years old thinking, it does not matter what happens from here on out because I have God and therefore I'm going to be okay. I truly felt that with such confidence. But you know what? I was also 20 years old, living at home, only making $6,000 a year. I was single. I didn't have any kids. 
And since that time, the stakes have, have been raised tremendously. Now I've got children, now I've got a wife, now I've got a full-time job, I've got a house, I've got other people I'm responsible for as a pastor of a church. And because the stakes have been raised, there's a part of me that feels like now, ooh, I've got to close my hands around all this stuff because if this stuff or these people get taken away from me, I'll never be able to be happy again. And I remember this really like super pronounced whenever we brought Nora home, our very first child. Y'all probably heard me talk about this before, but... When we brought our first daughter home, I promise you, I thought my life was over. Like, I'm not kidding. I did. I thought, I'm going to be anxious the rest of my life, constantly worried about this little girl. Like, is she breathing too fast? Is she breathing too slow? Like, what's going on? Was that a cough? Was she choking? Like, what's, what's going on? I remember just being so anxious that I've got to keep this little thing alive. And then God so sweetly, he just met me in that moment. And I remember he said to me this in my heart. I felt that God very directly said to me, Jared, You've had joy in your life long before Nora Kate got here. What in the world makes you think that you can't have joy when she leaves? She's not your God. She is a gift from me who is your God. I am the giver of all good gifts, and therefore the giver is always better than the gift. Do not let her be the thing that your joy hinges on. Therefore, if she's here for three days, three months, 30 years, long outlives you, here's the thing, George. You can still be happy. You can still have joy because I'm not going anywhere. And whenever my mind and my heart begin to be set on that, you know what happened? Is Nora went from stealing my joy to being a gift that I actually could enjoy. I had joy in my life. And all came as a result of saying, okay, you're right, God. She's not mine. She's yours. And I'm not in control. You're in control and you're good. And I'm just going to surrender that over to you. It's the first thing that Paul says has to happen here if you want to move your mind towards joy. But then secondly, he says, not only that, you have to give thanks That's the very next line. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. That's Paul's way of saying, if you want to be a joy-filled person, you need to discipline yourself to work gratitude into every single fiber of your being. I was listening to an interview with John McCain recently. Uh, As many of you know, he just recently passed away because of brain cancer. And in this interview, they said, hey, what's it like, uh, Mr. McCain, to know that you have terminal brain cancer? You know what his response was? He says, you know, honestly, he goes, every night I just go to bed more grateful than the night before. More grateful than the night before. And when I start feeling sorry for myself, I say, wait a minute, old man, you've had a great life. God's blessed you tremendously. Is that not incredible? Guys, I'll tell you right, like, I want to be there so bad. I'm not there, but I want to be so bad. And I think it honestly starts right here and right now, thanking God, working gratitude in our everyday existence, and not just for the big stuff, like a birth of a child, or she said yes, but even in the fact that you wake up and you can breathe through both nostrils. Right? Or that you have coffee, or that you, what, the laughter of your, whatever it may be. Give thanks. Look for things to thank God for. And then, third, if you want to move your mind towards joy, he says in here, you need to focus your attention on all that is good. In verse 8, look at this. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you are anything like me and the other 7 billion people on the planet, you tend to focus more on the negative than the positive. In fact, if you got nine compliments today and one insult, what are you going to tend to focus on most? The one thing that Paul just said, do not focus on. And honestly, you know, in our culture, I think in the age of the iPhone and social media, focusing on what's negative is becoming easier and easier for us to do, isn't it? I don't want to go on a tyrant here. I don't want to get on some sort of a box. But, but, but listen, for many of you right now, when you wake up in the morning, one of the first things you do is you roll over 
and you check your phone to check and see that text, to get on social media, to scroll through your news feed. And honestly, I say this with love in my heart, I cannot think of a better recipe for misery than that. To let your phone, first thing in the morning, set your emotional equilibrium and your news feed set your worldview. Mark Sayers, who is a pastor we admire a lot from Melbourne, Australia, they have this saying in their church with their congregation where they tell all of their members, win the day. Win the day. And what he means by that is put your phone on the other side of your house so that when you wake up in the morning, rather than looking at your phone, you spend time in prayer and scripture. That way, prayer is setting your emotional equilibrium and scripture is setting your worldview. That's what Paul's getting at right here when he says, focus on what is good and true and right. He says, you want to be the person of joy? Move your mind towards joy. And you do this. Listen, guys, three ways is practical. Surrender illusion of control to God, give thanks to God, and focus your attention on who he is and all the good in your life. But then secondly, what he says in here, and this one is a little bit more, um, this one might be a little bit new to you. It maybe might even seem radical to you. But what Paul says next is this is because we are more than a mind, because we are more than a brain, if you want to move yourself towards joy, you can't just move your mind towards joy. You also have to move your body towards joy. And here's what I mean by that. If you look in, again, Philippians 4, verse 9, Paul says this, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, right, in my body, in my morning routine, as I'm going practice, he says, these things, meaning follow Jesus the way you see me follow Jesus. Put into practice the things that I am putting into practice that I actually got from the practices of Jesus, and then, he says, you can become a joyful person. Now, for a lot of this, what this means to move our body into joy is for a lot of us, one practical piece this morning is we have to learn how to slow down. We have to learn how to match our pace with the pace of Jesus, If you want to be a person of joy, you have to take care of your body. You do. You you have to sleep. Get some sleep. You need to exercise. Like, Where do we see Jesus exercise? He walked everywhere he went. We have to be people who take a Sabbath. I mean, literally, do you realize Jesus, who is the God of the universe, took 24 hours every single week where he did nothing? God. And he commands us to do the same thing, right? He, he says it's good for you to take 24 hours out of your week where you do not focus on work-related stuff or do anything to better your life. You just enjoy God and his presence, and you don't go consume. You just be thankful for all that you have. These are all things that we see Jesus, the most joy-filled human being on the planet, practice in his own physical body. And as we've said many times before, listen, guys, you cannot experience the life of Jesus if you do not adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. You can't. You can't just think your way into this. You have to to embody all of what Christ is saying here. And therefore, because this is true, we must be intentional about not just moving our minds into joy, but moving our bodies towards joy. And listen, I think one of the greatest ways that we can do this as a family is by eating meals together. As we have said in this series on fasting and feasting, That all through the Gospels, we see that though Jesus is living on mission, though he's seeking to make disciples and he's ushering in the kingdom, when you read the Gospels, Jesus is either going to a meal, eating a meal, or coming from a meal where he is celebrating in a real and tangible way the goodness of God with others. Scene after scene, you see it. Jesus eating, he's drinking, right? There's grilled fish, there's probably like some pita and some hummus or something there, right? Laid out. 
He's constantly eating. And this should really be no surprise to us, considering that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who knew the Torah forwards and backwards. Which, by the way, did you know that in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, that God actually commands his people to practice a seven-day feast where all they do is just party, right? As a way of celebrating life in the kingdom of God. Did you know that? I just want to read this to you because I think like we just, we miss this so often. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 14, there's a lot of different places we could look, but I just want to read this to you quickly this morning. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 14 verse 22, you ready? You shall tithe, this is God, a command to Israel, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the Lord your God and the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there. So you should take 10% of your income and what does God command you to do with your income? You shall eat your tithe. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil and of the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always to remember how good he is and what he's done for you. And if the way is too long for you, right? If the party's too far away, for some reason you can't get there, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, and the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. Look at this. Look at this next line. And spend the money for whatever you desire oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. I mean, can you just imagine what, what God is saying here? O- on a practical level, I mean, level, this is literally like God coming to fellowship and saying, hey, I want everyone to take 10% of their income and give it to an epic party. Like, I started doing the math on that. I don't know how many people are in the room today. There's usually like anywhere between two, 280 to 300 adults in the room. So let's just say 280 people. And let's just say uh, that we all make, uh, by per person, according to Paragold, around $40,000 a year. What that means is 280 times $40,000, that is $11.2 million. And if we were to take this command seriously, what that means is God would tell us as a church to take $1,120,000 and just give it to a party once a year. Can you imagine that? Like, like literally, like, we'd be like catering in chow. We'd be doing like free massages, uh, face paint. Tat, free tattoos, like, like, you know, like Jesus fish, of course, and Hebrew tattoos on your wrist, right? You'd like fly in like Justin Timberlake to do like a clean set or whatever else, you know, hymns or whatever works, right? I mean, like, it would be epic and it'd be all for the purpose of just celebrating the goodness and the presence of God in our lives. And, and here's just the point of me bringing that up, guys. Listen, this is commanded in the Old Testament, This is commanded by God to Israel in the Old Testament. What kind of God commands you, on top of giving 10% to the church, what kind of God commanded his people to actually take money and set it aside for a seven-day feast for the purpose of just eating and drinking and enjoying his presence? What kind of God does that? Well, the answer is simple. A God who is the most joyful being in all of the universe. And who wants you to experience the same level of joy in your life that he has in his life. And by God's design, one of the best ways he says we can do this, we can celebrate that we can get that joy, is by throwing an epic party where there's plenty of food for everyone. And so as we come to a close in our fasting and feasting series, the practice for this week is pretty simple. It's to party. Thank you, Darius. (laughs) 
I was expecting at least some response. I mean, what other church are you going to hear that, right? And so, and the greatest way that you can do that, and the easiest way, is you can come to our church birthday party tonight. Celebrate six years as a church. There'll be bounce houses. There'll be food. There'll be music. There'll be games. Be all sorts of great stuff. You can bring your fishing pole, I guess, Kyle. Can they bring their fishing pole? Is that okay? Can they do that? Bring it, Kyle says. Uh, man, come and party. And listen, like my, my hope is not just that... Which, oh, do we, do we have the address we can put on the screen, by the way, Ryan? Can we put the address to Kyle's house? Is that okay? I didn't ask Kyle if I could do this first. Do we have it? We don't have it? We don't have it? Okay. Um, if you need to know how to get to Kyle's house, you can come and see me or Kyle or Adam or just go to Next Steps booth. But here's my hope. My hope is that we will not just be known as a church that parties once a year, but that we'll be a party people throughout the year because that's the way our God is. And, and I just want to make this really clear today because some of you are really nervous right now. When I'm talking about partying, I'm not talking about a worldly party. I'm talking about a kingdom-minded party. And I want to put this on the screen for you because I think this is so important because I think we have people that are running to both sides of the ditch when the truth is in the middle. But do we have the contrast between a worldly party and a kingdom party? There it is, yeah. So whenever the world parties, they typically do it to escape. When people in the kingdom party, they do it to celebrate. When the world parties, they abuse food and drink. When there's a kingdom party, you enjoy food and drink. When there's a worldly party, you go to sin. When there's a kingdom party, you do it for the purpose of becoming more holy, more like Jesus. When it's a worldly party, only the cool people or the people who are just like you are invited. When it's a kingdom party, everyone gets an invitation. When it's a worldly party, you have to hide from God. And you know that if you've ever been there and you're in a place where you shouldn't be, and you're doing things that God's commanded you not to do, you just have to pretend like God doesn't exist. But in a kingdom-minded party, you go to press deeper into the presence of God. And with the worldly party, you leave with a hangover, and who knows what else. (laughs) But in a kingdom-minded party, you leave with joy. So the practice this week is for us to be a people who party. It's to be a people who party, who celebrate in such a way that other people can taste and see how good our God really is. And before we end today, I just want to say this. For some of you in the room, I know this practice is going to be really, really easy for you. How many of you in here are a top seven on the Enneagram? Of course you would do that. You're a seven, right? If I asked, like, how many ones do we have, they'd be like, I, right? And so um, for some of you in here, sevens really are, by the way, if you didn't take an Enneagram, basically the seven, top seven personality is literally called the joyful person. They're like just a ball. If you need like someone to be around and just kind of like give you a pick-me-up, be with the seven. They're like a ball full of energy or they're incredibly addicted to something and they're a disaster. Like they're one of the two, right? <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's true. It's like the most addictive person out in the Enneagram, isn't it? And so um, for some of you, this is going to be super easy. For others, this is going to be really, really, really hard. Um, I read a statistic this past week that said 50% of people in America are dealing with depression and anxiety. Suicide rates are higher than ever before. And for those of you who are on antidepressants right now, you know there's a big difference between feeling numb and feeling joy. I've never been on antidepressants, but my seven score is a 3.2 on the Enneagram. Um, I've got a lot of melancholy in me. 
I tend to see the glass half empty. My wife can tell you I tend to focus more on the negative than what's right. I came in the day and I was like, what do you mean our back speakers aren't working? Like, you know, despite the fact like I'm not even, all this other great stuff that's going on, right? And it's just kind of where I am. And, but I just want to say this as we end today. I know we've gone just a few minutes over, so I appreciate your patience. No matter where you are this morning, I want you to know this. No matter what your Enneagram score says or your Myers-Briggs or your genetic disposition, the real Jesus has come to bring you a real joy. He really has. He really has. And today, no matter who you are or where you come from, the invitation is for anyone and everyone to come and to see just how good he really is. And one way that we do that every week as a church is we partake of communion. And communion is a reminder that the reason we can have a fullness of joy is because God has brought us, or Jesus has brought us, into communion with his Father through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And so if you're here and you've trusted in Jesus and you're already a part of the family of God, then you can come and take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. We have two sessions at the front. We have two in the back, gluten-free option for you in that back corner. If you're here today, though, and you are not a Christian, man, I'm, I'm telling you, you will never be fully satisfied apart from Jesus Christ. You will never be satisfied apart from Christ. You know it. And I would encourage you today to come. If you want to talk to me about this or Adam, we'd love uh, to sit with you. I know Luke as well and to share with you next steps on that. And so and a lot of that, once you stand with me as the band comes forward, I'll pray for us. And we'll protect the communion and sing another song. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for every man, woman, and child who is here today. I pray that truly we would see that you are not just true news, but you are good news that we need. And I pray that this good news will go deeper and deeper into our souls. And as a result, it will, it will be a great joy for us to spend time with you and to make you known to more people in this city. I do pray for the person right now who does not have a saving relationship with you. Holy Spirit, that you would make them aware of that and that they would stop trying to believe the lie. They have to clean themselves up first before they can experience this joy or they have to have all of their questions answered and that they would just go to you as they are. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.